But I remember talking to him at the airport and I said, well, you know, if, if I could tell you right now, you could wave a magic wand and say, okay, what is going to be the difference to go from seven, eight wins to get to you to winning conference championships and ultimately maybe even a playoff. You know what his answer was? That's Brock Heward. What successful Pac-12 coach was he talking with? And what was the answer? Find out that and more on an all-new episode of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kanzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Welcome to another episode of the Kanzano and Wilner podcast, or is it Kanzano and Wilner the podcast? I'm John Kanzano. You can read me exclusively now at johnkanzano.com. Get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. I'm here with John Wilner, as I am every week. John Wilner, how do they find you? Bay Area News Group, Pac12Hotline.com, and we're available outlets throughout the Pac12 footprint. How are you? What's what's going on up there? on this Monday here. Well, I can tell you what happened this weekend, and I don't know how, how great I feel. I, obviously, I saw a bunch of good college football, and uh, you know we got a lot to talk about with our guests. But before we get to it, I got to tell you, we have two dogs in our household. They're not real dogs. They're, they're like those, they're, they're Havanese dogs. And if you don't know what a Havanese dog is, it's a little frou-frou dog, okay? My kids love them. My wife loves the dog. I don't want to be seen with these dogs because it, you know, it hurts my image. Like if I'm driving in the car and the dog is in the car with me or something, I'm like, get your head down. I don't need people to see these little dogs. So I've always been, hey, we need to get a big dog. Like, and when we pick out a big dog someday, it'll be my pick. And everybody has, for years, Wilner, they have said, yes, dad, yes, yes, yeah, we pick these two. You get it. Well, over the weekend, my kids and wife saw what is called a sheep doodle. Okay, it's a blend between a sheep dog. And a poodle, a sheep doodle, not a shep doodle. That's a German shepherd in a in a poodle. It's a sheep doodle, and they are in love with a sheep doodle dog. And apparently, they know somebody who's got a litter, and they are looking at me with puppy dog eyes. And it, apparently, we're getting a third dog. And again, it's not my pick. Uh, and I'm having a problem. I'm having a problem with this. I want a dog. I want a real dog. I want like a lab. You know, like did you have a dog growing up at all or? You know, no, we had we had cats growing up. Cat we guy. had cats. I've got a dog now, and the dog it's a you know small dog, fifteen pound uh, mutt, uh, and she's she's great. But it is you know she's not uh, it's not a big dog. Yeah, there's no big dogs down here. Is it bad to talk about big dogs when little dogs are listening? Like you know, can I talk about wanting a lab someday while the other two dogs are like in the room? I don't know if they speak. You know, will they understand that I'm I'm talking about replacing them one day with a a real dog, like a proper dog that I'm not embarrassed to s- people to see me with in a park or something, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm looking up what a sheep doodle looks like. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. They're okay. kind of teddy bear looking. <laughs> Aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. See? That's what I'm that's what I'm getting. <laughs> kind of teddy bear looking. That's what I'm aiming for when I go to the dog park and I'm yelling across the dog park. That's a whole other discussion. Is they they're they're coming up with names that I could never yell across a park to, and the and the two young ones in our household, the two young daughters are six and eight, so they're coming up with names like Teddy Bear, you know that I, hey Teddy Bear, yeah. like I'm not gonna be yelling that across a park, so we're gonna have to have a discussion about that. Uh, we got a great guest today, Brock Heward, Pac-12 and Pac-10 fans will remember from his playing days at at Washington. He hosts a uh, morning show in seven ten a.m. Brock and Salk in Seattle. 
He uh, also appears on Fox as a college football broadcaster and analyst. Wilner, why is it important? You know, you know, Brock, Brock Heward, why is it important that he's on this podcast? Well, you know, I've talked to Brock over the years, and I just think he is as honest. Yeah, I mean, certainly he knows the game. At, he's the son of a coach, played in college, played in the NFL, played quarterback in the NFL. So he knows the game, but he knows the Pac-12. You know, he's been following the conference for, you know, his whole life, uh, does games out here, and he's just so honest. And anybody who is listening or watching the UCLA or the USC-Utah game, you could see how honest he was with, <laughs> given how upset he got about some of those uh, officiating calls, right? So insight, knowledge of West Coast football and, and his candor, to me, is a, as good as it gets. I think it's important, too, like, you know, he's he's got the playing perspective. He's got, you know, now that he's out of the game, he's an analyst. He also, um, I just think his viewpoint of the conference, being that, you know, he is a Seattle-based guy who grew up in Puyallup and the pride of Puyallup High School, he has, you know, got the Northwest feel, too, and I'm really curious uh, to see how he feels about Oregon and Washington and the UCLA-USC defection to the Big Ten and and what he's been seeing. And uh, above and beyond that, he's he's generally at one of the better Pac-12 games every week. So uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fun to talk with him. Well, and he's getting more Pac-12 because he's, you know, Fox's number number two crew, right, behind the Joel Clack crew. And now there are big games in the Pac-12, right? I mean, the last two weeks, there have been huge games, rank versus rank. So the more good games there are for Fox's number two crew, the more often he's going to be out here calling games. He's not he's not out in the Big Ten, Big 12 every week because the Pac-12 is better than it has been. We are pleased to welcome uh, a guest we've been waiting for. And you talk about Pac-12, Pac-10 football. You talk about broadcasting, hosts his own radio show, Brock and Salk on the air in Seattle on 710 a.m. in Seattle. You can catch him on Fox calling Pac-12 games. He was at the USC-Utah game. He was at the Oregon-UCLA game. Uh, Brock Heward joining us. Brock, thanks for making time. Well, this is easy. You make it easy because many times, and you two are guests all over the country on radio shows, and you try to remember the host names. Okay, let's see. That's Rod and Jerry. That's that's uh, Tim and Billy. Oh, what are their names? This is easy. So thank you, John and John, for, uh, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> identifying very easily with the name and and it is a, a a treat to come on with you guys you do a great job you two are the most respected uh voices in in print and in the podcast world with this conference on the west coast so glad to be a part of it let's talk usc utah ucla oregon i was at both games you were at both games i got to know your impressions when you know you're watching those four teams play what, what do you see from the broadcast booth Ooh, well, they were two different venues. The venue in Salt Lake at Rice Eccles that night was one of my three favorite to ever call a game in. In 14 years, I've got a chance to be in some neat, neat places. Big bowl games, New Year's Six Bowls, a Peach Bowl we had years ago with Shaquem Griffin and Scott Frost and UCF beating Auburn in their undefeated season is is up on that gold and silver and bronze medal stand as well. I, I don't think I can parse the... The, the top three, but that one. And then I did a Nebraska uh, hosting Miami some years ago. First time the hurricanes ever had been in Lincoln. So those three right there are on the metal stands. I'm waiting for the French judge or the Russian judge to uh, weigh her scores. And you could figure out who won this, won the gold, but that venue that night was emotionally 
uh, noise, um, just the, the the decision making, the calls at the end of the game, the guts that it took, the the tears. I've never seen tears from both sides. Caleb Williams in tears, Dalton in tears, just the Kincaid, the tight end for Utah. So that was different than Saturday. Saturday felt like just an elite level, almost pro style game, right? With some pro style concepts versus college style concepts. And Oregon felt very confident. Kenny Dillingham in particular, the day before meeting with him, he was excited about the matchup, excited to take a part. I think a lot of what UCLA was doing defensively and boy, did they ever in a stadium that equally vibrated at times in that first quarter, John. I mean, it was, it was, it was loud. It was proud. And both of those were pretty darn special venues. Brock, did you come away from the Utah USC game thinking that the officiating was the story? <clears throat> thankfully not. And thankfully I wasn't reprimanded nor suspended for, <laughs> for, my, for my role in those activities. Uh, I was curious. There have been times in my career that our crew has gotten some notifications from the SEC at one point, from uh, West Virginia folks at one point. You know, there, there's there's occasions you'll hear from the league or universities as a crew. And I was curious if I was going to hear from the league office, hear from my buddy Merton. I sit on the alumni council uh, with, with Merton and, and others. Kind of curious if I was going to get an email like, hey, you know, I get it. Just could you tone it down a little bit? But I was so caught up in the emotion of that that building in that venue that night and was disappointed many times that the refs were trying to get in the way, just get out of the way. That's not targeting. That's not targeting. That's not roughing the passer. That's not roughing the passer. His foot is in bounds. That's a catch. That's, that's not, you know, there's just so many of those. It just, the game sped up on that crew, unfortunately, but I will say, John, no. When I went to the hotel that night, the next day thinking about it, driving, they fortunately were not the story. The Warriors on the field who emptied the tank, I think, were much more the story. Do you think that you have more passion about roughing the passer? Because, I, I mean, I thought your comments were spot on, uh, and I think Dean Blandino did too. Yep. And that may have been why you didn't hear from the Pac-12. Um, <laughs> but because you played the position in college and the NFL, do you feel like more of an identity with the way – quarterback penalties are adjudicated yeah probably probably and I, I made a joke and oh boy there are a lot of upset folks in the social media realm of of like oh because you have a sore back you want these people to have a sore back how about protecting these kids <laughs> and i'm like no you protect these kids but you know what cam rising knows that those were bogus calls and he's been hit a lot harder in many other moments and i think he too like most quarterbacks respect the job of your o lineman and the d lineman and what the game means this is a game that is still built from the inside out it is still a game built at the line of scrimmage you're seeing in the nfl the market i live in what pete carroll is doing and pete's old and he's outdated and he's archaic and he's you can't run the ball anymore no the game's still at the line of scrimmage and the new york giants are right there at the top of the league and running the ball. Philadelphia Eagles are running the ball. The Seattle Seahawks are running the ball. Many of the surprises in the league are line of scrimmage teams that practiced and didn't take the preseason off, right? That, that played with leverage and played with their pads. And this is still a game that's defined by that. And, and I don't even know, John, if it was that I play the position, but I'm the son of a coach. 
And my earliest memories in life are being with my dad on the sidelines, like Damon and Luke, and being around his high school football teams and, and being in the equipment room, cleaning shoulder pads in the off season and watching guys hit and tackle and, and watching my 12 year old son play tackle football for the first time. And this is not flag football. This is not seven on seven. This is tackle football. And the essence of it still is, is about physical play and contact and fighting through violence and playing the game that way. And if we continue to try to diminish that, and as you say, adjudicate it away from the game, we are hurting, in my estimation, and most that love the game, you're hurting the very essence of it. As a player, you prepare, you practice, you watch film. As a broadcaster, you mentioned talking to Kenny Dillingham, the Oregon offensive coordinator. And, uh, you know, what's a game week of prep like for you as a broadcaster? Yeah, it's th those those Fridays in the building with staff and around players is my favorite part by far. So Monday, I will go and pick up my board um, and and start to to dial in on personnel. I'll spend you know a fair amount of Monday and Tuesday watching tape. And while I watch tape, I have the team pages of uh, this in this case Oklahoma State this week and, and Kansas state and both teams I've seen this year, which helps a lot because I know these players, but I'll go back and forth between the video to the team page with their bios and, you know, find a little nugget or two or, or try to learn their story just a little bit and then watch tape. And that's, you know, usually 10 to 12 hours of, of watching tape to get through two or three games, the most recent games of these, of these teams, it's hours of reading the stories and the notes uh, we get sent by Fox, all the, all the notes during, during the week, they, they curate all the stories that John Wilner and John Canzano write about these teams and about the conferences. And, and I'll read those. Um, and then obviously we'll get on the, on the plane Thursday, get to venue, spend all day Friday in production meetings with both teams and our own team. And depending on kickoff, either get up and go or spend a day watching football, going over my board, going over my notes. So it's it's a good 30, 30 to 40 hour incorporating travel and plus it's well over 40 hours. But yeah, there's a good 30 plus hours behind the scenes and making sure I'm pretty dialed in on the details, the scheme, the matchups. So when I sit with Kenny Dillingham and I say, man, you love formation into the boundary. Boy, you're taking advantage here. Tosh Lapoy and their different personnel groupings and stunts and coverages and making sure that that, you know, I present to those guys some angles that uh, that maybe the typical fans don't. And, and man, does it help unpeel usually more and more and more layers. Quick story along those lines. I said to Kenny, I said, man, I know this is kind of out of left field, but I love what you're doing with the QB snake. And his eyes lit up like the 4th of July. He was like, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't believe. You know, and he was so excited to share. Like in the spring, they were a disaster. Couldn't snap it, couldn't run it, couldn't function. And they worked and worked and worked and Alex and, and Bo and crew worked. And, and now it's become a true weapon that if it's fourth and one at their own 26, doesn't matter. They're like a hundred percent. Like we're, we're going to convert. It's in the red zone. It's critical downs. Like you have a go-to, you have a layup because of your confidence and your execution in it, that they can't be right. They want to step the a gaps. Great. We'll, we'll have an adjustment there. You want to do this? We'll have an adjustment there. And so, you know, those little details kind of geek out, nerd out about, but I think, for, for us and our crew, hopefully it helps set us apart a little. You, you probably watched a little, if not all, of the Oregon-Georgia game. I'm curious, you know, what you saw this week as they, they play UCLA. What are they doing differently, aside from the opponent just, you know, not being the best team in the country? You know, mm -hmm. is Bo Nix doing something differently? Is Ken, Kenny Dillingham, or, or, you know, is the scheme changed at all or evolved? 
they've learned each other. And it doesn't matter if it's a John and John podcast. It doesn't matter if it's a Brock and Salk show. It doesn't matter if it's an NFL team, collegiate team, 12-year-old team. Like you start to learn one another in the rhythm of one another and what we can do and what we can't do and what we like and what we don't like. You know, Pete Carroll loves to say this term, and he said it for 12 years in Seattle. He said the same thing in this dynastic run at SC. Like we got to learn our learners. And there's no way, no matter how much offseason, preseason you do, you get thrown in the in a hostile environment against the best team in the country, the most talented team in the country, and it exposes what you are and what you're not. And uh, since then, you have seen them maximize their efficiency, uh, build around their personnel, put them all in positions for success. I thought the difference Saturday was Bo Nix stretching the field. It's Troy Franklin becoming a legit go-to dynamic dude on the perimeter along with their veteran O-line and four running backs and four tight ends. But yeah, they're just, they're, they're a totally different team in that game. I think now in the rear view mirror, what it did is exposed so quickly what you were and what you weren't. You didn't play three cupcakes in September, right? Where, yeah, we got away with this. Yeah, we got away with that. You got away with nothing and you'll have to take it and you'll have to eat it, which they did on that plane ride home from Atlanta, Georgia to Eugene and they use that to their benefit, and you're seeing it pay off in huge ways. So, Brock, let's say the Ducks win out, and they're 12-1. and one. Almost every 12-1 and one Power 5 champ has made the playoff except one. Uh, do you think Oregon has got a shot, or do you think 49-3 to three is just going to weigh on everything, whether it's the ESPN studio shows that are talking about the playoff or the committee itself? Do you think that that one game could keep Oregon out? Well, in that scenario, you have beaten Washington, you have beaten Utah, you have beaten Oregon State, and then you have beaten somebody that's going to be likely in the top 12 in the country in the tra- in the championship game, right? So you've got to hope, John, and you know how this plays out. You guys study this and talk about it and detail it better than anybody, right? Now you've got to root for some of those teams to continue to win, for, for Washington to be a nine-win team, right? For Utah to continue to win and be a nine- or ten-win team. So Oregon State to... You know, obviously there's going to be a loss with Washington and, and Oregon State in, in a week and a half, but ultimately for them to, you know, to pump up their resume. So you're going to need some of that help and you're going to need a two loss team that you're going up against a one loss, Tennessee and a, and a one loss. If you play that all the way out, Oregon team, probably not going to get that benefit of the doubt because 49, seven is 49, seven, but you, you versus a two loss SEC team. I think that there's enough, and and we have seen that. You know, we saw that with the Huskies in 16. I think we would have seen it with with Utah if, if they had not lost to Oregon in a championship game, right? So I think we would have seen them as a one-loss team. And I think with the with the, what the conference is doing, and with their rankings, and with their numbers, and with their off out of conference, uh, you know, work that they got done with some marquee wins. Yeah, I do think a one-loss is going to upset a, a two-loss SEC in that case. What do you think about the quality of play in Pac-12? I mean, it seems to me like it is better. It's better at the top. The the quarterback play, which I would love to, you know, we should get into that with you. Quarterback plays better. The coaching is better. It just yes. seems like everything is yep. better. Whether there's a playoff team or not, it doesn't seem to me to look like the league we've been watching the last three or four seasons. I think that's undeniable. I don't think there's in, you know, there's football to play here in the month of November games. People will more often remember, but through September and October, that is, 
So, I mean, there's no, no debate about that. The, the length and strength of this lineup, right. Versus the big 10. And I saw a few of those teams this year, big 12 is pretty feisty. Now big 12 is a pretty lengthened lineup. That's my world series uh, parallel, by the way, uh, is a pretty lengthened <laughs> lineup lineup too, but yes, the, the coaching and the quarterback play and the systems and what they're doing is real. It's very real. Now there's not the elite and I think you'll see this in, in the last two weekends. I've seen it with my own eyes. There have been times where you watch a game and you're like, yep, Utah's got no answer for SC. SC's got no answer for Utah. UCLA has no answer for Oregon. And Oregon has no answer for UCLA. Is That ball is going up and down the field. And when you don't have monsters in your front seven and you don't have elite, elite difference makers and you don't have four that beats five, and I don't think there's any team in this conference this year who uh, against the better teams in this conference, those ones we're talking about, you don't have four D linemen that beat five offensive linemen. And when you don't have that and you have quarterbacks and coaching in this conference, you see a lot of production. And that's what we've seen certainly the last three weeks. Got Caleb Williams at USC, Cam Rising at Utah, Bo Nix at Oregon, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson at UCLA. There's some good QBs in this league. Michael Penix at yeah, Washington, Penix. Cam Moore, yeah. right? I mean, all of them. Uh, Delora and the, and the numbers he's putting up at Arizona. I mean, it goes not just two, three. You're stretching to six or seven that can single-handedly beat you on a weekend. Give me a, of that group. Who do you want if if you gotta you gotta play a season with a guy? Who do you want if you if you have a big oh, game? How about a possession? You know, it, it, is the answer different to those questions, or or is it one and the same? I think it is. I think it's also give me the supporting cast, right? I mean, you you got to give me an O line, and there's a lot of good lines. Washington's line's good. Oregon's line is very good. Oregon State's is pretty good. SC's is much better than people thought. UCLA is much better. The offensive line I'm speaking here than people thought. Arizona's got an NFL dude on it and is functionable. So kind of give me the supporting cast around it. And then I think that also kind of shapes those different scenarios. But I'll say this, like talking to different coaches as I get a chance to do in this conference and NFL personnel that I'll see, like to a man, the one that they keep bringing up is, geez, Cam Rising is just one tough sucker. Like you just can't slay him. You know, you're just you're just willing and, and want to like, okay, Utah's not quite as good this year. The personnel's not quite as elite. You lose your best playmaking, you know, player in, in Brent Keithy. And, you know, your defense isn't getting sacks and takeaways and turnovers and, and tackles for loss and these things that they had for the previous four or five years with Kyle. And Cam's just like cleans it up. We're good. You know, well, we'll clean it up. Even this running back, Tavion's been a major disappointment, heavy, gained way too much weight and everything else. I know there's some, some aspects of that off the field, but, you know, a year ago, you had Tavion Thomas as a sledgehammer and it was a one-two punch. Okay, I don't have him. That's okay. And I don't have my tight end. That's okay. I got some new pieces up front. That's okay. And he just kind of erases all of that. DTR's got Charbonnet. Penix has got the best receiving crew in the league. Bo Nix, as I referenced earlier, has got four tight ends, four running backs, an Alito line, uh, a difference maker on the perimeter. So you kind of go through that. Cam Ward's got a system that's so QB friendly that anybody's going to largely produce in it. Um, and, and Caleb's got Obviously, you know, from an O-line and receiver and that Addison injury is real and that affects them. But, you know, he's got Travis Dial. Cam's got, I think, the least supporting cast and he's got to do the most and certainly did in Salt Lake City versus USC. And he's a yeah, he's a he's a unique talent. You know, the thing is, we're talking about all these good quarterbacks. 
and we haven't even mentioned the guy who's going to be the highest draft pick of them all, at least this coming spring, right? Tanner McKee at Stanford? No, he won't. No, he won't. You don't think? No, no, no. That was like the whole Jacob Eason. Oh, and I got in a debate with people about Jacob Eason. They're like, oh, he's going to be a first-rounder. I'm like, no, he's not. Maybe in, in when he was in my draft class in 1999, but that's not the league anymore, you know, and, and the, you, you've got to be mobile. You got to extend plays. You got to be strong. You got to have, and he's got some plus height and I think he's got an okay arm as delivery's okay. But yeah, I don't see, I don't see that, you know, now obviously Caleb can't come out DTR will, and there will be, you know, some back and forth and, and some debate about that. But yeah, I'm not in that. I'm looking at some of these draft projections. I saw one that had Cam Ward in the first round. Like, what are people, what, what are you looking at? You know, that's not, that's not real. That's not realistic. And, and Tanner's good. And I don't mean to just totally poo poo that, but uh, I, I've seen some of those first round projections and I just, yeah, I don't get that at all. So if you're an NFL GM, wh- who do you see as of the Pac 12 quarterbacks now? Who's the best player in the NFL six, seven years from now? Oh boy. Okay. So let's, let's write this down. So it's Bo as far as eligible guys, right? So we got Bo, we got Penix. I guess Cam is eligible. As I Let's said. say you can have any of them, even even Caleb Williams. All of all these guys, who's the Caleb best Williams. NFL quarterback? You, yeah, Caleb. yeah, I think I take Caleb. So just because of of the athleticism, the strength, the body, um, the arm is very good. It's it's not great. It's not Mahomes. It's not anywhere near those guys. But it's very very good. Got to continue to see more of Bo Nix. You know his. It's I saw NFL guys at halftime. I said this on my broadcast. A bunch of them were like, Don't don't recognize this guy. I've never seen this guy. Mm. I mean, this is the best version of Bo we've ever seen. But there's so many gimmies in that system. There are so many. I, I think we had the number he was 44 of 47 on throws behind the line of scrimmage going into that game against UCLA. It's like 95%, right? So the throws 10 to 20, 20 plus. Still some question marks. Saturday, he was the best he's ever been in those throws. So he continues to put those games on top, one on top of another. And he'll have to do that against Washington and Arizona. And if they keep doing this in, in, in the Pac-12 championship game. So he's intriguing because he's got a great body and athleticism as well. But I think on that list, I'm probably leaning Caleb Williams from the inside out. Character, handling prosperity, selflessness, dynamic athleticism. Field vision can continue to grow. Lincoln system sets you up for success. See also two Baker. See also two Kyler. See also two anybody that Lincoln has worked with. But yeah, I'd put him there. And I'll tell you, intriguing wise, like if Tanner McKee is being projected as a first rounder, you tell me the difference between Tanner and Michael Penix. Both have been beat up a little bit. Both have bodies that are probably not sustainable as franchise guys, but. Penix's arm is infinitely stronger. It's a much quicker release. He's shown movement skills Tanner hasn't. So, yeah, I I I think that will be an intriguing conversation in the months ahead and certainly the years ahead too. Oh, I I think Penix is the he's the second best left-handed quarterback I've ever seen at Washington. <laughs> well, he's he's going to shred every number of that guy that played last century and Mark Brunell's got something to say to you about that too. Because I think Mark would probably be one, and then Penix is quickly becoming two. And we'll go back to that medal stand. Someone's just hoping to stay a bronze medalist. 
Do you miss the game? Do you have like do you have football dreams? You wake up in the middle of the night, it's third and eight, you know, no. you know, you, any no, of that. This game this this job fills that tank, man. Especially with working with people. You asked earlier about my individual work week and in it and I excluded working with Jason Benetti, who is brilliant. I don't you guys need to get him on your podcast because he is such a fun thinker and he's creative and he's analytical and he pings me. I said to my producer Bo on the flight this last week, we were on the same flight. I said, Bo, if you ever in your years ever worked with the play by, and he's worked with the greats, you know, some awesome. And in this, by no means, Joe Davis is immensely talented. Joe Tessator, Bob with shoes. And they're, they're all a plus, a plus, a plus, but Benetti's different. Cause he pings me with probably 10 questions a game. You know, I don't know. You guys probably don't watch TV copy too often, especially when you get in buildings, but you'll notice Benetti will ask me questions, inquisitive, quick, and I got to be like on it, you know, like I can't be in talk back or I can't be, you know, in La La Land or sipping on coffee. Like I got to be open ears, but it's made me better because he is just on it. Allison is as good as I've, she's the best sideline I've ever worked with. And I don't mind saying that she's phenomenal. Bo Garrett, our producer has got a couple decades in it produced, you know, at the very, very top at ESPN. Uh, Darren, our director is, is phenomenal. So we, we got a team. And so when you ask that question, do I miss it? I don't because most people and former players say, Oh man, I miss that locker room. I miss that team environment. You never get that. You get it doing this. If you got a special group of people that love what they're doing, you do actually. And I'm not mentioning Gilbert and Brooks and all the wonderful cameramen and women and, and data folks and stats people and graphics that make it go as well. We got a really neat team and that help helps fill all of that tank. It rocked the conference, USC, UCLA, uh, defecting to the Big Ten. How did that strike you? What do you think of it uh, as, a, as a guy who played in the conference? Yeah, it rocked me too. And I try not to think about it. <laughs> you know, I was on uh, Bill Riley, who I know you guys appreciate and respect out there in Salt Lake City, play-by-play -play man, football, basketball, radio host there, great guy, dialed in, tremendous at his job. He, you know, when that news came down, I remember jumping on his show that day and thinking, what is happening? What? What world am I living in? You know, poor Bill Walton and his TP passed out, I think. Like, you know, <laughs> smoke inhalation that day. Like, no, how is this possible? So it rocked me then. And quite honestly, John and John, I don't think about it. I don't want to think about it. I'm like locked into this season, going into all these venues, experiencing these amazing games the rivalry that's there, you know, Washington, Oregon may be on our horizon in a few weeks and knowing that I'll walk in there and people will be dog cussing me and I hate you. And you know, that, that the, the purple and gold is just despised in that place and everything else. And yeah, it's uh, I don't want to think about it, to be honest with you. What about Washington and the big 10? Have you, as with your alumna, when you think of it as your alma mater fan, do you want to see the Huskies in the Big Ten eventually? I know you you two are writing about this, John. I read your article, I think, was it last week, <laughs> that you documented, you know, does this make sense for the Big Ten after Kevin Warren's comments with Big Ten Basketball Media Day? And your co your column was exactly what I've heard from everyone that, that I'm around. And there's some similar circles, some, uh, you know, you and, and me and, and John all have, you know, similar contacts, and I'm sure people we reach out to and those bubbles intersect. And your column was spot on. And that's a, a lot of what I'm hearing now. When will it make the financial success to profit share and split the, the pie 20 ways in the Big Ten? I don't know. 
I don't know when that will be. I don't know what that will look like. But when that happens um, and what happens then to Oregon State and Washington State will be sickening to me. Right. That will just be I've got so many Coug friends. I grew up with with just as many Wazoo friends as I did Husky fan, Husky friends. To this day, I've got so many Coug friends that, yeah, I don't want to think about that. And, and you know, where your scenario laid out what's to come with those four in the north and the four in the south to the Big 12 and all that stuff. I really, as I said, I truly don't want to think about it because it, yeah, it makes it makes it sickening for Oregon State and Washington State. And you having played in the NFL and did a stint as a broad, you know, calling games in the NFL. Do you feel like the college game and the pro game, it just seems like they're becoming one and the same in so many ways. Not yet, man. Not yet. And Rice Eccles filled and overflowed, you know, with just that's, that's not the NFL. You know, you don't, you don't get that. I think Benetti's line, because they were, you know, wearing the dark jersey and played at night. He's like, it's as if the night is screaming at you right now. <laughs> and you don't you don't get that in the NFL. Maybe playoff time, certainly champion championship weekend, and but you don't get that week in and week out. So I hope not. And you know what? Speaking to Corvallis and to Pullman, you know what's special about the NFL? Still going to Buffalo and Green Bay. Those are those are amazing places. And you know what's still cool about college football? Going to Manhattan, Kansas, as we will this week. And going to Ames, Iowa, where it matters so much. And going to Corvallis, Oregon, who is renovating their their building. And, you know, I, I chatted with the, with the coach who was just up there a few weeks ago and saying, even with it half full and those stands, he's like, man, those people care. They care so much. And that chainsaw just rips. And it matters to them. And it matters on the Palouse, you know, was there last year when they pushed SC to the brink and they've been in that venue at night against Stanford in prime time and, and they care, you know, and, and that's what this reorg you lose, right? You just lose the essence of those communities, those, that the neighborhood feel that rural feel that those environments now Manhattan and Ames look like they're going to be okay in this shakeup. But as I said, where Corvallis and Pullman end up one day is a place that I don't want to think about. I was thinking about Jonathan Smith and Oregon State over the weekend and, and what he has done. I mean, he essentially started from a standstill after Gary Anderson, and, you know, he's built that thing, and, and they have a chance to win nine or ten games this year. Success story. Uh, meanwhile, he doesn't have a quarterback. You know, it surprises me a little that a guy who, whose offense would be viewed as maybe quarterback-friendly hasn't landed one. What do you make of that? Well, you know, it's a, a little hard in, in to, to quote Kyle Whittingham and some of the others when you get into recruiting battles of where QBs end up and, you know, what kind of upside and, and what kind of NIL money and, and what kind of trade and, you know, what kind of stuff is available for me at Oregon or at Washington or at USC or at Arizona, Jaden Delora, or go all around the country, right, with, with the free agent wheel of QBs and, and how it's spun and where they all ended up. And most of them ended up with uh, with some money in their back pocket, some upside and opportunity off of the field in ways that are more difficult in Pullman, you know, and more difficult in Corvallis. Now, Cam Ward came to Pullman and he came with the head coach from Incarnate Word and he came with a, a car deal, which is pretty cool. And, you know, I think when you come from Incarnate Word uh, and you and you bump up to the power five level, you just appreciate anything and everything that you get. 
But for a lot of those other free agents, there's some significant competition. And yeah, I think it will be a little bit harder. It won't take long. He'll find one if he stays there in Corvallis. If they don't poach him from somewhere else this offseason and he doesn't look at those situations. But yeah, I don't I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to it other than just the free agent competitive nature of finding that transfer QB. All right. So when and where, when you find out when and where were you when you find out Washington hired Kalen DeBoer? And what was your, do you remember your, your reaction? Ooh, well, I know this. Um, the week before that happened, I was on the road still, or maybe it was two weeks before, and there was a coach on another team in the Pac-12 who I've known for a long time, and he came up to me before the game, and he said, hey, listen. And he had no ties to Kalen DeBoer. This was not a, he was not on staff with Kalen at all. And uh, he said to me, he goes, if your if your school, your former school, where you're an alum at, does the right thing, and in, in not the perception game, they should hire Kalen DeBoer. He's the best coach going out there. And I was like, wow, you know, I not heard that. We weren't even talking about it. It was totally unprovoked. <laughs> and uh, he said that to me. I was like, that that resonated. And when when it came down, I thought exactly to being on the field to that conversation, I should probably text that coach and let him know he was right. Because from X's and O's, he's phenomenal. It was all about perception. Are you willing to hire someone that's, you know, been and cut his teeth for decades in South Dakota and, and then down in Fresno? Or, or do you want to go for bigger? Do you need a bigger splash? Do you need a bigger name? Do you need somebody that's going to recruit and live in those recruiting circles, you know, to compete with Oregon and SC? Or are you simply going to get the best developer, the best QB, you know, just whisperer and X's and O's guy and Jen Cohen, the AD at Washington, settled there she know she knew that to compete in this conference she needed an excellent x's and o's guy a qb guy and that's exactly what she got in kaylin DeBoer. so your thought it seems to me like the huskies are set up now right i mean it's almost like you go back to the beginning of the peterson era and you can envision a, a bill a quick build and then multiple years at the top right do you feel like that's that's the destiny here because I, mean, I think I don't know that Washington it's a different era now with the recruiting right mm -hmm. do you feel like Washington can get back to the very top and, and stay there well again I'll give you a little story time I've done a lot of that on this podcast uh, for better or worse stories are good for a, a little story time Chris Peterson first Pac-12 media day I think they were then maybe were they Pac-12 Pac-10 uh, don't know. Doesn't matter. Uh, and he and I were on the flight back from C from L.A. to Seattle for after the media days ended. And God bless him. He's in middle row uh, economy reading a book. And I was like, that stands out. A, he's not on a private plane. B, he's not even first class. C, he put a hat and glasses on. I don't think people even bothered him. Um, but I remember talking to him at the airport and I said, well, you know, if, if I could tell you right now, you could wave a magic wand. And say, okay, what is going to be the difference to go from seven, eight wins, which is what was pretty consistent with Sark at Washington? What's going to be the difference to get to you know winning conference championships and ultimately maybe even a playoff? You know what his answer was? No, I can't even guess. Kanzano, you got to guess? No. Uh -uh. Well, he was absolutely right, as a lot of these elite coaches are. He said the difference will be whether or not we can get elite defensive linemen. Hmm. We'll get receivers and quarterbacks and we'll develop tight ends and, and fullbacks and linebackers. And there's enough, you know, depth and market of corners and safeties on the West coast. 
So we'll be able to do those things, which he did at Boise. And, and, you know, obviously that story was well-documented, but could you do that at Washington in those, in those, in, in that battlefield of recruiting, could you do it? And you know what? He was right because Vita Vea was a program changer and how he ended up there. Go ahead. You could, you could write a story about how he ended up there if you guys have not done it yet. Cause it's a, fascinating spin and many of the competitors thought there is no way either eligibility or classes or however he was going to find a way to get there but he did and they got him and he was the mountain of a man they needed in the middle Greg Gaines elite guy NFL guy starter in the NFL Vita Bay a starter in the NFL and then sprinkle in Elijah Qualls who at you know fifth round pick in the NFL just a little bit undersized but a great college player so that's how they did it then. And I fully believe that with DeBoer and in, in, in much the same DNA as everything I rattled there with, with Chris at, at Boise, he'll find receivers and DBs and safeties and develop linebackers and O-linemen and, and you know probably a running back and tight ends. But will he be able in a pinched market to get enough defensive linemen, especially whenever that day comes to compete against Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State in that conference – that will be the end-all, be-all. Arizona State and Colorado are looking for coaches. If you are, uh, if they consult with you and they go, Brock, give us, give us some advice. What would you tell them? Well, the name you're hearing down at ASU, and, and you're going to continue to hear. And if they continue to do what they're doing with Bo Nix and everybody else, makes sense. Because the Kenny Dillingham I met in Memphis six, seven years ago, to the Kenny Dillingham I sit with now, and have done so twice, and probably will do. Two more times this season as it's playing out, uh, that guy went from being just, in my opinion, way underaged, way too young, way too immature to be a head coach to, yep, that's Mike Norvell plus. Like, that feels different, and this guy gets it, and now he's been around Norvell, and now he's been around Lanning, and he's listening, and he's learning, and he's young, and he's optimistic, and he's creative, and he's getting the best out of people. That's what that program needs. So you're hearing that name floated around, and I think it will be, if they continue to have this success, it may be hard for Dan Lanning to keep him more than just, I mean, it's remarkable, right? I mean, just one year. Um, but Dan said to us, it's the one thing he took away from Kirby. Kirby never wanted to slow anybody's growth. He wanted the program to be an incubator of growth for players to go to the league, for coaches to get head jobs, that when they were rolling and they were best, that's what it was for player, for coach. Everybody got to eat. Everybody got to take advantage of opportunity. So that's a name that, that makes a ton of sense there. Colorado's hard, man. That's a hard job, right? I mean, ASU has shown some flashes of winning seasons and bowl games and everything else. How many winning seasons at Colorado since 03? One? Uh, one or two. That's I it. I mean, that's a, that's a hard, hard slog. Yep, That's and a, a lot of head coaches. Hard campus, right, where football, their fans are actually pretty good. Student body's rabid. Neat stadium. When it's full, it's glorious. But that's a that's there's hard campus dynamics, you know, a few hard academic, you know, dynamics that, that make players getting in there sometimes hard. Rick George is the AD, right? I got his name right? Yep, yep. Um, that's the guy. Yep, and that's that's not an enviable spot. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy one. And I would say to – you know, Rick George, you know what you need to do? You need to find the next Kalen DeBoer. 
And, and I guess I'll give you a name um, that, that I would certainly interview, be top of my list, would be Brian Brennan at San Jose State. Mm-hmm. Tough job, really hard job, really difficult environment, you know, on the West Coast. And where are you in the pecking order? And even in the Mountain West, where are you in the pecking order? But Brian Brennan's awesome. He does some amazing stuff. And I, that would be a name that uh, would be front and center on my list for for Colorado. It's so often that the schools feel compelled to right, win the press conference, hire a big name, satisfy their their donors. And, you know, it was a you couldn't help but notice the contrast last December. Right. USC hires Lincoln Riley. Huge splash. Biggest, biggest name out there. Right. Yep. Oregon gets landing defensive coordinator for the national champs. And then Washington goes with DeBoer totally under the radar, all of them good hires, but you just, the, the tendency to just pick uh, so many schools, just picking the the name that's going to win that press conference. It's hard for them to, to avoid that habit. Yeah, no, I don't think there's, there's any question about it. And, you know, I'll have Chris Kleiman this week as well. And, and Chris is a fun guy, right? North Dakota State, all the advantages at North Dakota State, all those national championships, but kind of doing it under those lights. And, you know, that's just a fit. Yeah, that makes that makes sense then to go to Manhattan, Kansas and and go someplace where you got to develop. I mean, you're Colorado, right? Your your history is what it is. Mike Bellotti taught me this years ago. I remember asking him about different jobs and the way coaches look at it and is, hey, can can you win there? What is the track record? Good coaches have gone to that place and they can't turn it and they can't win. And there's got to be something more than just the coach, right? There's got to be some difficult dynamics in place to, to overcome. And yeah, I think that Colorado one right now for Rick George, and we saw it in the last hiring process, right. And having to, in my mind, and, and I love Carl Durrell. He is a wonderful human being, but that was, that was not going to turn it, you know, (laughs) That was, that was not going to be the, the answer in the fit. And, yeah, I think, uh, as I said, Brent, Brennan, now will, will, will Brennan have other opportunities? Is that going to be the right spot for him? You know, how many doors could open to him? He was involved in the interviewing process and many of those those jobs. And, and I think the smart ADs know when they look at what you just said, John, and, and look at, yeah, look at what Kalen's doing there. Who, who's, a, who's another Kalen? Who's somebody? Oh, yeah, I got San Jose status. Sure found some some success there in some very difficult stormy waters to navigate. Got to ask you, and for those who don't know, Brock is on the PAC-12's alumni council, which was formed last year and lots of big names, right? I, uh, Mike Pilate is the only coach, but there's what, 15, 20 former players, Scooby Wright, Lincoln Kennedy, Steve Smith, um, you know, tons of guys. Where does that stand? You know, do you feel like, you all are able to make, have been able to make a difference uh, or did the USC and UCLA thing just kind of derail that whole process? No, I don't think so. It, yeah. Merton Hanks heads it up with folks in the office and, and he wants input and Mike Bellotti may be the only coach on it, uh, but he's certainly the coach in that room. <laughs> when I heard stories about uh, Barry Alvarez, right <laughs> uh, down there in their meetings, it's very yep. Yep, Bilotti very much has a very strong, rightfully so, experience and opinions, much more than any of us former players uh, do in that regard. So Mike is a very, a very loud uh, voice, an appropriate voice, and doesn't mind challenging, as do a number of the other players. 
So we will get together again around the championship game in Vegas uh, coming up here sooner than later, I guess, just a month away. Yeah, and I think we all, they, they don't have answers because they don't know uh, where this negotiating is going with their media rights and what that is all looking like. We'll know more a month from now than we did the last time we got together at Pac-12 Media Days before the season. Um, but yeah, there's some there's some different dynamics <laughs> in that room than there were before the news of USC and UCLA departing for sure. Brock, uh, before we let you go, I always ask the same question at the end of the uh, podcast interviews. And think about this. Uh, what's the best advice that you've ever received? Stump. Yeah, that, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, <laughs> see, I talked a lot. Ask me questions like that, and I talk a lot less than I have <laughs> on this podcast. But like, you know, or maybe advice that you lean into, you, you find yourself oh, I mean, the you know? challenge, John, with that is there is I'm a product of all of those influences. I'm a product of where I came from in Puyallup, and I will never forget that, right? Growing up in 1,100 square feet, I don't know how my mom did it, right? We had one bathroom growing up with three boys and my dad, and and just the stink in that house with shoulder pads and helmets and God bless Peg. She is just a, a saint um, for, for help, you know, being my dad's support system for 50 years as they've been married. I'm a, I'm part of my dad. There's no question as far as this football stuff and what came out of me at Rice Eccles Stadium is my dad for those of, <laughs> for those that didn't know him. Mean, he's a hall of fame coach and he was emotional and that's who he was. I'm a product of Tony Dungy and his influence in my life. I'm a product of so many incredible chaplains in my life. I'm a product of a men's group with other men that I'm involved with. So there's, yeah, there's just so many of those influences that, that have helped shape who I am today, that it's hard for me to just pick one and probably for this podcast sake and football sake, and shared a bunch of stories about my dad and, and football, it probably goes back to him and never forgetting that, uh, you know, once you start to think your poop doesn't stink, stink, it reeks. You know, so that would probably uh, be one that, you know, just just try to be humble and treat everybody the way you want to be treated, the golden rule in the Bible itself. So, yeah, those would be probably a, a few of the bigger imprints in my life. All right. You catch him on Fox College Football Broadcast. You can also catch him on 710 a.m. in Seattle, Brock and Salk in the mornings. I appreciate you making time for us, Brock. It's always good to see you at the stadium. Uh, thanks for sharing all your expertise. Thanks a ton, Brock. Oh, you got it, guys. Always a blast to join two of the most informed. And, and like me, man, you guys have a passion for this West Coast and a passion for this conference. You're the most read, the most listened to, and fun to jump on and be a part of it with you guys. Thanks, Brock. Thanks so much. I absolutely love that interview. I, I love, too, that he struggled a little bit at the end to come up with that life advice because I think it's such a big thing. Like, what's the best advice you've ever received? And some people thought a lot about it, and some people – you know, are just living their life and go, you know what? I never even really considered what the best advice that I got was. But great interview. I love the fact that he isn't happy. It breaks his heart that UCLA and USC are leaving the conference. Um, I, I love that he would be against Washington and Oregon leaving. He's a purist. You can tell that. But his assessment of the quarterbacks was my favorite part of that. When he's talking about Caleb Williams or he's talking about Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr., that to me was the highlight. Yeah, well, he sees he sees those guys. He sees the game, you know, like a a coach. A played he played quarterback in the NFL, so he's gonna see it the way you know a, an expert does. And I think that's that's part of the reason why he's so good, not only on the broadcast, but you know, he's he's terrific assessing the Pac-12. I've I've interviewed him a ton of times over the years, 
What do you think about the state of quarterbacking? What do you think about the, the lineup of coaches? Right. And he's always honest and he sees it. He sees the conference for what it is. And he clearly thinks that it's better. And, and certainly what we're seeing on, on the field supports that. It also, you know, when he was talking about Washington's hiring philosophy, when, you know, they're going, they went for Kalen DeBoer. I, th- I mean, is he not talking about Jeff Tedford as the second guy? Maybe. I, the thing about Tedford is I don't, I just don't know about health wise with him, yeah. right? He had to take a break from Fresno State, which is how DeBoer became Fresno State's head yeah. coach because Tedford had to step away for health reasons. Yeah. So, but was this, uh, was that Jen Cohen's backup? Was Jeff Tedford like the hey, if I can't get DeBoer, you know, because quarterback centric, offensive minded in the Mountain West? I mean, you know, who's he talking about? Maybe it, uh, he may have been talking about Brent Brennan at San Jose uh, State. Okay. I'm sure that Jen Cohen, you know, she had two when she's making that hire, right? And they had to get that hire right because of what happened with Jimmy Lake. She's got two of the best football minds on the West coast of the last 20 years at her disposal with Chris Peterson and Jeff Tedford, because Tedford, you know, worked as an analyst for the Huskies uh, under Peterson. So she can turn to both those guys and say, who do you see out there who I don't care about winning the press conference. I don't care if they got a big name, who's the best coach. And it's easy for me to envision Peterson and Tedford both telling her, Kalen DeBoer's a guy you should hire. Before we end this podcast, you know, on that note, you know what I started thinking about was, Mario Cristobal goes from Oregon to Miami, struggles. Uh, Willie Taggart goes from Oregon to Florida State, struggles, gets fired. Chip Kelly leaves Oregon, goes to the NFL, face plants, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, then San Francisco, gets back to UCLA. He was like 18 and 25 before this season, and, you know, it wasn't looking good. I'm wondering if, you know, that hiring philosophy of getting a Kalen DeBoer or maybe getting even a Dan Lanning, who really doesn't, you know, he doesn't, Dan Lanning's ties are really to Missouri, and his his alma mater is William Jessup University. So he's not. It's not like William Jessup's going to steal Dan Lanning. I kind of just wonder about your ability to retain guys. If you go and you're not trying to win the conference and not trying to be splashy, you do what Oregon State did and bring in Jonathan Smith home. You bring a Kalen DeBoer to Washington. Dan Lanning's at Oregon, and you know I'm kind of wondering like what what would he leave for? I don't know that Dan Lanning would leave for the SEC. So maybe you have an advantage in retention when you hire like that as well. Well, I think we've seen that in football and also in Pac-12 basketball. There are examples of guys who have some success, and if you don't have roots out West, if you didn't grow up here, if you didn't go to one of the schools, you're more likely to flee for the first decent opening on the in the eastern half of the country because that's, that's what you know, that's where you're comfortable. I always think Pac-12 schools for football, men's basketball, you know – Hiring somebody with West Coast roots, it can't be your uh, the number one criteria, but it's got to be way up there because then you reduce your chance of losing that guy. Look, Conzo Martin leaves Cal basketball after a couple of years to go to Missouri, right? Because he's from back there. That's the trap you fall into if you hire somebody who doesn't have Western roots. John Wilder and I do this podcast. We post twice a week in the college football season, and we record twice a week. We appreciate you being here for it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Also, leave us some feedback, especially if you're using Apple Podcasts. Uh, you know, Commit to us. We're committed to doing this for you. We love that you're here. We love the feedback. We're having a lot of fun with it. We have more big guests planned, uh, but uh, thank you for being here. Thanks, everyone. He is the great John Canzano, johncanzano.com. I'm John Wilner. 
Bay Area News Group, Pac-12 Hotline. Thanks very much for listening.